Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Chris Voss, the former lead international hostage negotiator for the FBI and the author of Never Split the Difference, the business book about how to apply principles that he learned while negotiating with some of the most dangerous people on the planet in business and everyday life. And he is the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group. And we're really excited to speak with Chris today about how you can establish tactical empathy with your teenager and then use some strategic negotiation techniques to make them feel like they are getting a great deal with whatever curfew you want them to have or with whatever you want the rules to be and how you can kind of set up that negotiation and use some simple strategies to make it go really effectively. So I can't wait to dive into that. Chris, thank you so much for making the time to be here and speaking with us about this. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me on. So one of the big things that you wrote about in your book that I thought was so cool was you talk about something that you call tactical empathy. And my brother works at a suicide hotline and you talk about working at one of those yourself and kind of using that experience to gain these skills. So I'm really interested in how that worked out and how tactical empathy might be used with a teenager, especially towards the beginning of an important negotiation or conversation to kind of like uh, break down their defenses a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it can absolutely be used with teenagers. I mean, we're seeing people use it with children anywhere basically from about age five up. Okay. So let me, let, let's start with why do we call it tactical empathy instead of empathy? How about that? There you go. Okay. All right. So when I first learned this, a lot of people learned that empathy is just very broad, very general term, but the application of it, we've come to find out, and it's backed up by neuroscience, that when you use uh, what we, we referred to on a hotline as reflection, what I called as a hostage negotiator, motion labeling, what we now call as business negotiators, just labeling. Labeling. Okay. You know, you label a positive emotion, it reinforces that positive emotion. You label a negative emotion, it diffuses that negative emotion. Um, And these work every single time. Now, what people get confused by sometimes is um, it doesn't guarantee the matter of degree. Uh, But since we know even, even more now in listening for different, what do you want to diffuse a negative? Do you want to reinforce a positive? I mean, that's the tactical application of empathy and the understanding of what it is. So it's just a more precise, intentional understanding than just sort of labeling the emotion you hear and waiting to see what happens. It's looking for specific things and intentionally trying to dial up or dial down certain emotions. That's what I thought was cool about your techniques in your book here is a lot of it is kind of about really having like a deep knowledge about the person that you're talking to. 
And that if you can know things about like their motivations and about what drives them, then you can kind of use those. And you talk later in your book about uh, you call them black swans, things that you don't know that are really maybe important to the other person that if you knew them would like really, really alter the course of the negotiation. And I thought that was such a cool idea. And I wonder like, how do you find those, you know, and especially with like a teenager that you kind of have known for a long time? Are these things that you maybe already know that you just have to kind of recognize? Or are these things that you maybe don't know about yet that you have to uncover or find out? Yeah, great question. I mean, and it's really not about knowing it in advance, but you know, what are the, what are the skills that uncover it, what you want to learn? Mm. And are they in really predictable places? So okay. when I was in hostage negotiation, they just said, look, label emotion that you hear, the presenting emotion. Now, vast majority of the time, the presenting emotion is going to be a negative emotion. Sure. And then you combine that with they, they all always told us, look for the loss. I mean, if we're talking to somebody who's barricaded someplace for whatever reason, yeah, there's going to be a loss. And nine times out of mm. 10, it's going to be a loss within the last 24 to 48 hours. So we didn't know that that governs all behavior. We just thought it governed hostage-taking behavior. Ah. And I learned hostage negotiation in the early 1990s. And then along, along about 2002 or so, Daniel Kahneman wins a Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics on prospect theory, yeah. which says that fear of loss is the outsized influence on all behavior. Sure. And right. the different biases. Yeah, yeah, cognitive biases. And they're they're all built around that. And they didn't say in hostage takers, they said all behavior. And they didn't say Americans, mm. they said human beings. Again, all behavior. Sure, yeah, it's universal, right. And so now I'm like, all right, so I guess what we were taught in hostage negotiation just didn't apply to hostage takers, it applied to human beings. Ah, yeah, yeah, and, right. And they happen to be involved in hostage situations. But again, they're just human beings. And what we now refer to as the limbic system, which is the amygdala, the hippocampus, a couple of other long sounding names. In the brain, the, the limbic system operates, I think a great analogy is to the respiratory system. Okay. When is your limbic system off? When is your respiratory system off? Neither one Ever Hopefully on. never. <laughs> and, yeah, what, you know, right. and that's a lot what we psychologists used to identify as the subconscious. They say your subconscious is working and influencing your mm. thought patterns at all times. And even while you're asleep, your subconscious is at work. Uh, well, right. the subconscious is the limbic system. Sure. And again, the great analogy to the respiratory system is I might ask you, can you control your emotions? And you say, sure, I control my emotions. Yeah. And I can say, can you control your breathing? And they'll say, sure, I can control my breathing. And I say, all right, well, stop breathing for an hour. <laughs> you know, so the degree of control we have our emotions is very similar to the degree of control we have over our breathing. We can intentionally slow it down and gain control from about 30 to 45 to a minute and a half seconds. Yeah. But then the autopilot's going to kick back into gear and it's going to go back and begin to operate the way it operates. Okay. But so then what you're saying is that we can notice these times when emotions maybe don't make sense or when behavior kind of seems a little irrational. Our teenagers may be doing something that seems like that just like doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? 
that these are like signs that you can use as clues to somehow uncover black swans that you can use in negotiations. Right. Those are absolutely the clues that take take us right there. And, you know, what you said is really interesting in that, you know, behavior that doesn't make sense or it's irrational. Mm. Right. So there's kind of two things there. When behavior doesn't make sense to us, somebody's being driven by an emotion either that we're not recognizing or we choose not to recognize. Ah, right. Like when you say you shouldn't act that way to someone, what you're doing is, look, I recognize what's driving you. I just don't like it. Otherwise, I wouldn't use the word should. Huh, right. You know, you shouldn't be angry. Well, you're angry. I recognize it. And I've just chosen to decide for you that you shouldn't be angry. Should should is should is the, is the word yeah, that- Yeah, yeah, right. If you as a human being are using the word should, then you are out of sync with the situation. (laughs) Right. But you think you totally understand better than everyone else what they should be doing. Right. What, what, What is in fact happening doesn't conform to your set of rules. So you're saying, well, reality shouldn't be this way. You're recognizing that you don't like what's going on, but it's, it's actually going on. Okay, but so then isn't that hard as a parent because don't you feel like some of your job is to tell your kids what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing? So how do you do that in a way that you're not really telling them what they should be doing? Right. Well, it's it's not just hard as a parent. It's hard as a human being. Sure, yeah. I mean, an awful lot of what we misinterpret as parent-child dynamics is really just human being to human being dynamics. It's two human beings dealing with each other that happen to be very close and very very vested in the outcomes with one another, which makes both sides less rational. Sure. Everybody acts in patterns. Everybody other than actual paranoid schizophrenics. Sure. Because, you know, they have, they are hearing voices. They are seeing things. These are actual, for lack of a better term, wiring problems that they're struggling with. And those voices that we have, you know, whatever it is that induces schizophrenia in somebody, we have no way of knowing what those voices are saying. Sure. Or what they're seeing. So they're the only ones that are really kind of patternless. Uh, Everybody else acts in patterns. We might not like those patterns. Sure. You know, if you if you don't like a certain politician, and I'm not taking a side <laughs> now, we just happen to have a good example. Sure. You know, people will say that people say Donald Trump is irrational, but nobody's surprised by anything he says or does because uh, he acts in patterns. Yeah, yeah. He's a human right. being. You know, how many times does CNN have to say, I can't believe that Donald Trump tr- tweeted this out? Right, right, right. And, you know, every other day, because Donald Trump is a human being, he's going to act in patterns. And when we don't like those patterns, sure. we say they're irrational. It would be more shocking if all of a sudden he started only he tweeting, tweeting G-rated, uh, yeah, politically correct, polished. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, sure. I mean, yeah. and but, and but his supporters are saying, well... He's not irrational at all. So it's it's like beauty. It's all in, in the eye of the beholder. When, when rationality is really more about whether or not you agree with someone's behavior. Ah, right. And yeah, reality is subjective. Right. So that's interesting. And I wonder if we could kind of like break that down a little bit in, in a little more detail, like some sort of specific example. How would you notice a, an emotion that doesn't make sense? 
then how do you tie that to the underlying black swan behind it, you know? And then, and then from there, once you figure that out, then how do you go ahead and use that to establish the tactical empathy? When you start simply recognizing people's emotions, the black swans will come up. I mean, I remember that sometimes for practice when I was volunteering on a suicide hotline, I'd be in conversations that the only thing I would do would be recognize the other person's emotions, just for practice. Okay, yeah. And I can remember walking down the street with another FBI agent, a female FBI agent that I was working with, and we were discussing an issue. And all I was doing was reading her emotions and articulating them back to her and connecting them to her behavior. Huh. And we're not two minutes into the conversation, and she goes, you're reading my mind. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm, I'm, all I got to do is read your emotions. You're going to open your mind up for me. Huh. It's, it's really kind of that simple. So, okay, so what would some of those phrases look like, or what would you say to someone to label an emotion? Well, you know, a great, a great thing, you know, the emotion is going to come through in their tone of voice. They're going to either sound angry, they're going to sound upset, they're going to sound distant, they're going to sound cold. Sure. They're going to sound hurt. They're going to sound happy. You know, you just you just label it. And if you're confused by what you hear, a great one, like we teach everybody, whether they're interpersonal interactions with people they're close to or business. Uh. A magic label is sounds like that's important to you. Mm. Now, no matter what they just said, you're going to get more information as a result of putting that out there. I see. Sure. It encourages them. And a different versions of that, another one would be, sounds like you're giving that a lot of thought. Ah, right, right. Now, what happens when you say, sounds like you're giving that a lot of thought, hmm. then you just grabbed onto the thread that's got that whole thought string behind it. Yeah. And you're going to pull it all out. And you're communicating that, I understand this thing is important to you, but you're not judging it, right? So you're like bringing it up but in kind of a really like open way that allows it to be discussed. That's pretty cool. Sounds like you've given yeah, it exactly. a lot of thought. Huh. That would be when you see a topic that seems to be like something that your teenager seems to be kind of excited about or something. Yeah. You know, yeah. One way or another, I mean, you're going to start to get them to, you know, for lack of a better term, we call it vomiting information. You want information. You want them talking, especially with teenagers. Yeah. Because, you know, you want, you want to trigger thought processes to be articulated. It helps them hear what they're saying. Simultaneously, it also sort of wears them out. And it, that, that is never a bad thing. So, okay, another thing that we want in the conversation that you talk about in your book is we want yeses. And it feels good to get a yes. And a lot of times, I think as parents, it's like, you know, you go into a conversation and your objective is like, hey, all right, I just need to get the kid on board with XYZ thing. And it's like, hey, you're like, is it okay? Is that okay? Is that okay? Like, give me yet. Yes. Okay. Good. Got it done. Like, got to move on to the next thing. And so maybe it's like a, a rush kind of thing. But I feel like a lot of times those yeses that we get when we just kind of push for a yes from our kids are not genuine yeses, like you talk about in your book. So I wonder how you can tell the difference and how you can avoid falling into the kind of fake yes trap. Yeah, well, you know, it's the simplest way is to just don't try to get yes. I mean, that's <laughs> like what you said, we're trying to get yes because we're trying to coerce the other side. Again, it's a human mm. nature issue. We're trying to coerce them. We're trying to back them into a corner. We're trying to take away their autonomy. We're trying to force them. Sure. 
I mean, no human being likes that. None. Doesn't matter whether it's your kid or not. Yeah. It just creates resentment. But kids, since we do this to our kids so much, hmm. they then figure out really quickly because they see this 8 billion times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All they got to do is give us the fake yes and we move on. Ah, right, we right, get right. We get really happy and satisfied and we move on. Well, like you say, it's a pattern that yeah. gets triggered. We teach them to give us a fake yes. Sure, right. Yeah. Right. And they're like, all right, look, all I got to do is say yes to mom or dad and they'll lay off. Right. And then yeah. it, it conditions them. It conditions them. Yeah, yeah. So the solution is then you're saying to like notice when you're going into a conversation that your objective is, you know, looking for a yes and then to tweak that objective a little bit more to like kind of understanding or something. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, really, really the, the platinum response that you always really want to get from somebody else that, that's much quicker, but it seems like it's a waste of time. Yeah. Is to really to articulate their perspective till you get them to say that's right. Because when someone vents on us, it seems like they never shut up. Yeah. And what this does is actually short circuit, shortcuts, hacks, whatever term you want. Mm. It hacks the venting process. And so you do not even get into venting at all where you're just waiting for the other side to run out of energy, but they just keep getting madder and madder and madder. What it just, it just does is it just completely short circuits it. So, okay, how do you get a that's right from your teenager? You know, typically you want to paraphrase what they've just said. You you get really good at it. You you paraphrase what they've said. You paraphrase it and you, you label it. Sounds like this is really important to you. Your kid says to you, but everybody's doing this. Your answer is, it sounds like this is really important to you. You know, Uh but most parents want to say, well, if everybody was jumping off the roof, would you jump uh, off the roof too? You know, or, yeah. or I'll just die if I can't get this. Sounds like this is really important to you. Again, we're talking about diffusing what's driving them, which is the recognition of these emotions seem to be such an utter waste of time until you try them out and find out how fast to make the conversations go. Ah, uh, right. And it's like in this classic technique that they teach therapists called motivational interviewing, which is a big in our literature on, you know, alcohol, uh, alcohol use, because it's a technique they use to help people with addiction. But one of the things they talk about is rolling with resistance. And that just like really strikes me what you're talking about is, you know, if your kid is like really emotional about something or they're like driving really hard in one direction towards something, you don't want to like, you know, meet them head on, you want to kind of roll with that and you want to kind of slowly turn them to a better way. So by doing what you're saying and saying like, oh, sounds like that's really important to you. Sounds like you're giving that a lot of thought. It allows them to open up so that you can kind of start to steer them a little bit, I think, which is really cool. Exactly. And it diffuses also what might be driving them out of control. Yeah, yeah. Rather than if you meet it head on, it blows up and that like escalates the energy. Whereas what you're saying just kind of like sucks the urgency out of it or something. And it's really cool. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But so then it's funny because you talk about that and how you diffuse the situation. But then you also talked about that sometimes it's actually beneficial to kind of strategically use anger or 
tick the other person off. I think you call it strategic umbrage. Is that something that you think you would ever use with a teenager where you kind of purposely get them a little riled up? Yeah, you know, and that was one of the things that we talked about a little in the book that we're really reluctant about and, and we, we've thought about a lot since. Mm. And we just had a consulting call. Uh, my son is my director of operations and he's our top coach. Yeah. And some people were mad at a, some counterparts. And, you know, it's the old, do you fight fire with fire? Right. And, you know, everybody loves that. And But ask yourself, when was the last time you saw a fireman go into a fire with a flamethrower? Yeah, right. Let's fight fire with fire. If that worked, firemen would go to fires with flamethrowers. And when you put it like that, it just sounds utterly insane. So it sounds like what you're saying is if you were to rewrite the book at this point, you might kind of change that or not include strategic umbrage as a, a strategy. That's correct. We're here with Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference, and we're not done yet. Here's a look at all the exciting negotiation tactics that are coming up in the second half of the show. We, we just tell people to substitute the word what for why, and it changes the entire dynamic. Mm. Instead of why did you do that, you say what made you do that. Ah, that is cool. Why'd you make that choice? What made you make that choice? I mean, it, it takes away the sting of accusation. It's a huge difference. Huh. We've got a phrase, ignore human nature at your peril. <laughs> and so, again, this is another human nature thing. I mean, if people get something easy, they think they could get more. Yeah, right. You know, they, they've got an appetite. They've got energy. There's always that lingering thing afterwards. It's like, oh, if I would have pushed a little more. What are they thinking about me? Okay. And if they're thinking negatively, the, the critical issue is we, we don't deny the negatives, we label them. I see. And there's some real obvious stuff here. If you've got a problem with your teenager, you know your teenager is going to see you as a tyrant. Yeah. You know, you're, you're a dictator, you're a tyrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually what would you want to deny? You'd want to say to your kid, look, I don't want, to think, I don't want you to think like I'm a tyrant or a dictator. So instead of that, say, look, I'm sure I seem like a tyrant. I'm sure I seem like a dictator. Okay. I'm right. sure I seem like I don't care what happens to you and your social standing. Because it's shocking when you take away their arguments instead of reinforcing those arguments. When you articulate them, it leaves them with nothing to say. It takes all the wind out of their sails. It takes the wind out of their sails. It's insane how effective that is. His son goes, you're just going to tell me how I'm wrong again. Yeah. So the kid that's code for, I think you're wrong, and I'm getting ready to tell you that. Exactly. Because an employer-employee relationship, you know, every employee knows, they can say to themselves, someday you are not going to be my boss. Mm, yeah, you know, right, right. Someday that's coming. Your kid is never going to be able to say, someday you're no longer going to be my parent. Right. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.